Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and we're thrilled to be here every week bringing you stories of some amazing women in the Philadelphia area and across the country as well. And today is not going to be any different. Um, we also have the wonderful Dr. Beth Dupree joining us uh, by phone. We never quite know where she's going to be <laughs> any given day. And today she's she's joining us from the airport, actually, in Philadelphia. Um, she's she's going to be flying out this afternoon to attend the annual meeting for the American Society of Breast Surgeon, Surgeons. Excuse me. And uh, Beth is going to be teaching a course on uh, hidden scar mastectomy and a course on ultrasound. And she's also going to be addressing um, over 1,500 surgeons regarding the integrative approach to breast cancer prevention and recurrence um, of reduction. So she's got a lot on her plate. Um, before I, I um, speak with her, I want to make sure I give out the phone number to call in. We'd love to hear from you if you're listening and, and would like to speak to either our guest or Dr. Dupree. Our number is 610-664-4100. Um, with beside me here in the studio is actually um, our guest for today, and her name is Lisa Kabnick. Lisa is an international finance lawyer. She is former vice chair of the financial industry group for Reed Smith. And she's going to be uh, chiming in and joining us in, uh, after we do a little intro with Beth. So, Beth, t- talk about your trip, um, where you're going to be going, what you're going to be doing this afternoon. Absolutely. Well, God willing, the flight will be on time. So far, the, uh, the monitors say that it's on time. I'm going to be flying into Orlando. And every year, the American Society of Breast Surgeons, which is an organization that has, I think, over 3,000 active members from around the world, we meet to discuss the latest and greatest in 
breast care, the clinical studies, the research. It's really a coming together of so many um, amazing physicians who've dedicated their careers to the diagnosis and treatment of breast disease. So I'm very excited because this year's conference, um, not only am I uh, teaching surgeons hands-on um, how to do hidden scar or nipple sparing mastectomies, I'm also going to be um, helping in the uh, ultrasound course. And then Saturday the, at the general session, um, a topic which I know that you know is very near and dear to my heart is how can we um, help to decrease the incidence of recurrence of breast cancer and also decrease the risk of developing breast cancer. Um, that's, that's wonderful, Beth. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, certainly the, the more that you're able to um, get to audiences and groups of people and talk about the success you've had in this area, I think the better. ASCO Post, which is uh, it's a, it's one of the things that I allow to have a direct um, being on my Twitter feed, um, came out this week with the um, some data that was presented in Philadelphia that by the year uh, 2030, um, it's anticipated that the incidence of breast cancer is going to increase by 50%. And that is a number that I do not like whatsoever because I know that, you know, 75% of breast cancers are not genetically based. Therefore, we have multiple opportunities for improvement as a society to educate and empower women to take control of those risk factors that they can to decrease their risk. And my, my youngest son, who's at Penn State, the, the paintball champion, um, was writing a paper, and he said, Mom, I need, to focus, I need to narrow the focus on something you know, that can be very impactful. And I said, Dean, if you just look at women in the high school age, and college age, so take that eight years of, of women, and if they can learn that maintaining a healthy BMI, that regular exercise, um, that um, decreasing or limiting alcohol consumption, um, that hoping to be able to have their first pregnancy prior to the age of 30, and breastfeeding when they do get pregnant, as well as stress reduction, we have an opportunity to really change that risk profile because currently the women that are going to show up with breast cancer you know, in the next 15 years are going to be people in my age group um, and the decade below in, in their 40s and 50s. And if we really want to make a stand, we really want to make something the clock and go back to get these kids at the age of most of my patients' children because you have to have those lifestyle um, sustainable changes. And nobody's really heeding the warning. Nobody's really listening to the messages. And it's very frustrating for me as a surgeon because I see the tail end of this when these women show up in my office with estrogen-driven breast cancers, which we know we have ways to help decrease the incidence. Yeah, you know, that, that number is, is staggering. When you shared that with me, that 50% number, um, one of the things that, you know, Holy Redeemer is doing well, and I always want to say thank you to Holy Redeemer Healthcare System um, for allowing us to bring the show to the audience every week, is um, the purchasing of an additional screening tool. And you did an interview with Stephanie Stahl, on CBS3 that's going to be airing shortly, um, hopefully prior to Mother's Day. Um, can you talk about that for a few minutes? Sure. Ultrasound is a new technology that has uh, received FDA approval about a year and a half ago. And for women who have um, what we call dense breasts, which means that their elements of their breast tissue are not fatty. Fatty tissue comes out black on a mammogram. Dense fibrous tissue shows up as white on a mammogram. And since cancers show up as white, 
If you have a white cancer and white dense breast tissue, you can't see through the dense tissue to find the cancer. And we know that 40% of women, 40%, so that is a huge number of women, have mammograms that are not as diagnostically sensitive as we would like them to be. We also know that these women that have dense breasts have a higher risk of developing breast cancer. So what we have done at Holy Redeemer is taken this knowledge we have available to us and now created the opportunity for our patients who, when they have a mammogram, they receive a letter from the institution that tells them what their breast density is. And it could be a very dense breast could be either a category um, C or D or a category three or four. It depends on the nomenclature of the hospital. But it has actually become legislation and it's a law that women must be um, told what their breast density is. And this is in so many states across the country. And I'm, I'm you know, kind of waiting for this to become federal legislation. But if a patient has dense mammogram, she's going to get that letter and say, wait a minute, there's something else that I can do. They can call their doctor who can then order what's called an automated whole breast ultrasound that basically creates a topographical map of the breast tissue so that we can identify those areas of abnormality that are hidden within the breast, den the, the breast density that we may otherwise not see. And it's a big deal because for women who have dense breasts that then find a cancer who've been going every year for their mammogram, they feel as though they've been failed by the system because they haven't been able to find an early screen-detected breast cancer, which we know is usually found at an earlier stage at a more treatable time. Right, right. That's wonderful news, though. Another step forward um, to have that. It's awesome. Have that screening. I, I have to say kudos to our administration because not every hospital administrator says yes to new technology, even when the reimbursement may not be there. Mm -hmm. But because Holy Redeemer is committed to, you know, really caring for women in a way that other, you know, some other places don't, um, they made it a priority to, to be the state-of-the-art breast care. Right, right. Listen, something, Beth, that you have in common with our guests today, Lisa Kabnick, is your affiliation to breastcancer.org. And I know that there is an initiative. Yeah, Think Pink, Live Green. Talk about yeah. that initiative and what it's going I'm to about do. 40 pounds of Think Pink, Live Green in my luggage right now, I have to tell you. It's <laughs> like, great to hear. He's like, lady, is this a body bag or what? I'm like, no, it's just <laughs> Think Pink, Live Green. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I feel like I needed a Sherpa today to, to drag my luggage in. Um, but they are, there's an amazing um, pamphlet that, that uh, breastcancer.org put out. Marisa Weiss is not just a friend of a survivor, she's an amazing physician, and she gets it. And they took on this initiative to put together, um, you know, totally data-driven um, information for patients to look at and say, there's 31 ways that you can decrease your risk of breast cancer. And it's a beautiful, beautiful pamphlet. Think pink, live green. You can get it online um, on breastcancer.org. And I'm taking them down because I'm trying to encourage other surgeons to have them available in their offices. I will tell you, patients come in and I see one stuck in their pocketbook, you know, because we, we leave them out on the counter for them. And, and they'll say, well, could I have two or three more? Because I said, take as many as you want. This is about disseminating information mm -hmm. that can help women learn what their modifiable risk factors are. Because we, we can't change every risk factor that there is for breast cancer, but we can 
change the modifiable ones. And that's the message. That's the take-home message is, you know, you can't change your family history. For some women, they can't go back and, you know, decide when to have their children or how much to breastfeed. But everybody has modifiable risk factors. And to me, the Think Tank Live Green, um, I know that Lisa knows Marisa very well. She's an amazing woman with a huge heart and a, a passion-driven woman who said, listen, we're putting these out there. We're putting these out there. It's um, it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of information, and and there's 50 pounds of it coming to. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you know, I'm going to switch to Lisa right now and and let her tell the audience, um, you know, what her affiliation with BreastCancer.org is, and and it's it's a big part of her story and and why she's here today. So, oh, yeah. thank you, Sue and um, Beth. It was wonderful to speak with you yesterday and and to learn of all the interests we share. Uh, speaking of breastcancer.org, I know the earlier version before the Think Pink Live Green was um, taking care of your girls, consistent with what you had suggested for your son um, for high school and college age um, girls to learn how to take care of their breasts. That was all part of Marisa's early book. thinking. It's yeah, it's a great book. It's a great I have book. It sitting in my waiting room. Good. Great to hear. Um, so I had breast cancer. I was diagnosed when I was 39 and had nine months of various treatments. And at the end of that, I said, okay, now I want to get involved, give back, learn more. Um, and just coincidentally, I met Marisa at a um, Emily's List event that I had been invited to, not something I regularly did. And she was going to be on the Today Show the next day. And we had a long discussion about the size of her earrings. <laughs> and I, I I mean, you just fall in love with the woman. She's so charming and she's so engaging and yet so brilliant and caring. And so I said, okay, what can I do? And I got, um, at that time, uh, she had started something called Living Beyond Breast Cancer, which is a local organization in Philadelphia um, devoted to the issues surrounding diagnosis and treatment and helping other women with survivors, helplines and the like. <clears throat> and um, probably four or five years later, Marisa was putting together this website, which ultimately came, became breastcancer.org. It originally had been eyebreast.org. Um, and my husband, actually, who's sitting in the studio with us, helped her um, negotiate the breastcancer.org Earl um, from somebody in Georgia who had purchased it originally. Um, and I tried very hard, actually, as a lawyer to merge the two organizations but for various reasons the board of living beyond breast cancer didn't want to go in that direction so i um waited a discreet time and after that i left the board of living beyond breast cancer and became more focused on breastcancer.org and joined that board and my husband and i actually shared a seat on the board for several terms until we termed out but we still support the organization to the extent possible. We just think it's brilliant. Yeah, getting, just again, get awareness, awareness, and more awareness. Even for, it's it's amazing to me how many of us, I don't think there's any of us actually who don't um, know someone personally, if not a family member, um, who is going through it. And, um, you know, the more that we can talk about it, disseminate information. I think especially, too, Beth, you know, I'd love your take on this for women and young girls who maybe, do, you know, we don't have a history, and so we don't pay quite as much attention to it. That's a good point. You know, that the information needs to reach those women as well. Oh, yeah. By virtue yeah. of being born a woman, we're all at higher risk. Yeah, right. I mean, for, there you go. For men, 
to get breast cancer is for every 100 women that get breast cancer, one man is diagnosed with breast cancer. And so by virtue of being born a woman, we're all at higher risk. And the thing that is um, concerning to me is that the cancers that are expected to be diagnosed, um, you know, in the year 2030, um, they're not going to be the triple negatives and the HER2 positives. They're not going to be that small subset of cancers. These are going to be the estrogen-driven breast cancers, which we know are so much more lifestyle-related than the others. And so for us to not make every woman out there aware, um, right. it's, it, you know, we're, we're sending the wrong message. That's right. And it's not about scaring women. It's about saying, listen, you know, we're all at risk for breast cancer. You need to get your mammograms for screening. Uh, the, the greatest comment that I hear, Susan, is when a woman says, oh, my God, I got my, I got my mammogram every year. I can't believe I got breast cancer. And right. I look them right in the eye and I go, mammograms prevent death from breast cancer. They do not prevent breast cancer itself. Yeah. And right. they kind of look at me and go, oh, my God, I didn't think about it like that. But they think because they're going every year. But it's, it's a combination of they'll do. You know, you still have to do breast self-exam. There are a lot of doctors who don't encourage their patients to do it. But the way that I look at it, you own them. You're the best ones to know them. And if you're not comfortable, you know, examining your breast and, and taking this concern to your doctor, then, you know, the 20% of breast cancers that we can't find mammographically are going to be lost. And we're not going to find them until they become very obvious. So I agree with you. Women have to be aware, regardless of their family history, that mm -hmm. by virtue of being born a woman and having breasts, we're at risk. Right, right. You know, and someday, you know, I, I'm always curious and, and wanting to talk about what what we think is causing all this cancer. And, you know, that's going to be a whole other show. And, um, you know, maybe we'll do that down the road. But um, I... For the listeners, again, I just want to remind you, we're, we're in the studio today with Lisa Kabnick. Lisa is an international finance lawyer and former vice chair of the financial industry group with Reed Smith. And Dr. Dupree is on the phone with us from the airport um, on her way to the annual meeting for the American Society of Breast Surgeons. Um, I want to kind of switch over to Lisa now and find out more about her story, because um, while she did have uh, breast cancer, two times in 94 and 2009. There's a whole lot more to Lisa's story than that, uh, that I want to share with the listeners. And, and she, to me, um, Lisa is, is a huge inspiration and I'm, you know, so impressed with the work that she has done. And not only that, but her involvement in so many, um, other organizations here in the Philadelphia area and in New York, um, always giving back. So, as we always do on Women to Watch, we're going to start at the very beginning. And I know that you were uh, born and raised in New York. And I wonder if you can just talk for a few minutes about your younger years there and uh, and the town you grew up in. Okay. I'm, I'm happy to do that. I just want to say, um, as we segue from the breast cancer, though, that I had it twice. I've been through it. And I feel so lucky every day that I'm still here because of doctors like Dr. Dupree and, and the people who treated me in modern medicine and all the wonderful advances because, yeah. um, you know, I, I wouldn't be around were it not this time that, you know, I'm living in yeah. and able to have taken advantage of all that. Absolutely. So, Beth, thank you. Yeah, we're lucky for you, Beth. We're lucky. Myself and all my colleagues who, you know, this isn't a job to us. I always say that I, I was teaching some young breast surgeons and I said, if doing breast surgery is a J-O-B, you're in the wrong one. It has to be driven by passion and purpose because patients 
don't get cookbook medicine with breast hair. And, and Lisa, from you and I talking about this, I mean, your journey was incredibly, uh, you know, you'll, you've, you've gone through so much, but I know that you realize that your, yours is a life worth saving. Yours is a life that had a purpose to it. And the fact that you're now giving back, understand that, you know, it's not like you went through this journey and crawled under a rock and said, hey, I'm not going to discuss with anybody that I have breast cancer and I'm not going to give back to these organizations. You get it. And to me, that's when, when patients can turn around and say, you know what, my life has been blessed and my journey is very different because of breast cancer. And that's the message that I heard from you is that, you know, not that you ever want to go through chemo and radiation and surgery again, but you know what, you have become such an amazingly strong leader and such backer. Um, not that that's a term, but you're doing it, and, um, you know, that's that's making a difference in the world. Well, thank you for saying that. So I was born in New York City. Uh, I was very lucky because, um, well, for a few reasons, not the least of which is that after I was five, my parents moved into the same apartment building as my grandparents, and uh, I went to a school right across the street called the Ethical Culture Fieldston School, And my grandfather um, was a huge role model in my life. And so when I was a little girl, until he died when I was just shy of 10, um, I was the oldest grandchild living there. And he used to take me to breakfast sometimes. He taught me how to play gin. And he used to really make a big fuss over this very little girl. So I I think that was a really important person in my life. Um, Grandparents are the best. And he was very special. Um, His wife only recently passed away at um, almost 101. Wow. Oh. Yeah. I thought I had these oh fabulous genes, yeah. you know? Yeah. My, my mother's mother died at 99, and um, my father's mother died at almost 101. So this that is getting genes. breast cancer at 39 was like, wait, this isn't supposed to happen right. to me. But right. anyway, um, so I went to a really wonderful school um, called Ethical Culture where we um, we were – educated academically, but we also had a, a, car, a course called Ethics once a week, um, starting when we were in pre-kindergarten, when we were four. And I think kind of it sank in. Yeah. So That's fantastic. It was an amazing school, and, and I continue to support it um, to this day. You know, I wrote down um, a quote or, you know, kind of more of a mission statement from the school because I hadn't, wasn't familiar with the school, and, and I was, you know, reading about your background and your bio, and I, and I wrote this down because I thought it was so powerful. They, as a school, they say, we inspire a diverse and joyful community of passionate learners, critical thinkers, and ethical individuals who aim to make the world more humane and just. And I thought, wow. Wow, that's, that's it. Is, right? <laughs> that really sums up. That's it. And I thought, what a wonderful opportunity for young people to be exposed to that kind of learning, especially in a place like New York City. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So what kind, I mean, I know that it was impactful for you to go to that school. Describe really how that impacted you in the work that you do. Hmm. Well, it, 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 it's a part of me. You know, I, I am, my husband teases me that compliance is my middle name, but it's important to me to do the right thing. Yeah. Not to cut corners or not to do things that are sort of on the edge. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been with me as a lawyer. I know people make fun of lawyers, but um, I'm I'm a careful, very careful in that respect. Yeah. Well, I think it you know it speaks to the the fact that there there is right and wrong, 
And and sometimes, you know, we get lost in trying to figure out uh, or maybe overanalyzing things to determine if they are right and wrong from a moral place. But um, if you are educated in a way that is always brings you back to that, right. I think, and especially in today's world, what a, what a great gift. I think you're right. Yeah. I think that school was a gift for me. And just coincidentally, we were at an event in Boston this weekend, and of 200 people, I was seated next to a man who... His wife had passed away, and he raised a six-year-old by himself. His wife had been diagnosed at 39 as well with breast cancer. So, you know, that was obviously a very meaningful um, meeting. But then, turns out, his young child had gone to this school, and he had been on the board of the school for many years. Wow. So, you know, it was he, – he got it. Yeah, it was, he did. It was a um, – it's an important connection for me. And it's a small school, am I right? And it's still today, or has it grown um, in number? It's small. It's small. small. There are two lower schools um, of about 60-ish kids, three classes of 20 from pre-kindergarten through sixth grade. And then there's an upper school called Fieldston. Mm -hmm. And two two lower schools come together. And that's about 120 for each of seventh through twelfth grade. Yeah. Okay. But it's beautiful. Um, And then you went on to to high school and uh, birth. Birch-Wathen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, school and um, I, I want to know what activities you were involved in during those years, as far oh, as outside little, the classroom. <laughs> that's my little welcome secret. Um, well, <laughs> not anymore. No. I was <laughs> I, uh, so I was able to go to Agriculture Fieldston um, through ninth grade. Mm-hmm. I spent one year uh, in a public school on Long Island, and then came back for two years to uh, to Birchwath, and where a friend of mine from Hebrew School's father had arranged for my sister and me to get scholarships that we were back in New York City, and you had to have a sport. And girls in those days really didn't do sports, so I was a cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. That's active and, you know, keeping you spirited. It was, it was what was sport. available. Right. It is a sport. Oh, my gosh. That's right. Have you seen those competitions on, you know, on television? Uh, I try to avoid it. It's, it's like one of these <laughs> embarrassing secrets. But the other thing, being in New York City, I um, that school was across the street from the Frick Museum, and just a few blocks from the mm. Museum of Modern Art and Metropolitan Museum. So I did spend a lot of time in those two, those two years looking at a lot of art and understanding it and studying AP art history, something that people who aren't in New York City don't have the opportunity to do. Yeah, so. yeah, that's wonderful. That's a, I mean, just kind of makes you more well-rounded. Yeah, and it stays with you for your whole life. Yeah. Um, you know, you're quite modest about your accomplishments, and I'm going to tell the audience that you graduated magna cum laude from both Pitt and University of Penn. Um, to me, you can't do that without really um, working hard on your academics, and I, I wanted to know what it was that, number number one, what dro- drove you to that level of academic excellence, and how were you able to maintain it? Hmm. Well, I guess what's always driven me um, from the time I was probably a little girl and I s- sort of started to understand the world, was being independent and being able to take care of myself and my children. When my um, parents got divorced, um, each of them in their own way faltered and, and wasn't um, as able to take care of us as they would have liked to have been. So I wanted to be financially able to take care of myself and my children. So that's something that's always driven me. Um and I actually enjoyed what I was doing as a lawyer, um, so that made it um, easy to 
continue and to work hard. Obviously, you have to work long hours and you work hard, but I didn't mind. As much um, as you're a fellow pit grad. Yep. That's right. <laughs> That's something else. There you go. Well, That's you know, right. We were probably there. I was in Holland Hall. We were probably there at the same time. So it's very possible that we had a connection at Pitt way before now. Let's see. I was in the law school. I went to Penn undergrad and I was at the law school from oh, 77 okay. to 80. So okay, I'm probably well, older than you are, but let's not go there. <laughs> no, I think you're you're younger than me by the years, but that's okay. I'm not going to out you. Okay. <laughs> we don't talk about age on this show. Okay. <laughs> right. Women typically don't want to give their age. No. Um, that's true. Um, so but what kept me going was, um, in addition to loving what I did, mm-hmm. every transaction I worked on, every deal were more interesting people, and I loved getting to know all the different people and their stories. Yeah. Well, it's so it's always interesting to me, and and we've had this discussion off the air too about how everything um, that kind of shapes us and who we are does start from when we're children. And you know, I'll mention you you have a younger sister, so often the oldest child has to kind of step in and um, you know take charge in certain situations. And so that was something that was ingrained in you, and then you had this desire to. Um, you used the word security, and, and I found that to be of interest, that at, as a young girl, you would be thinking to yourself, when I get older, I want to do something that will allow me to feel secure, right? Right. That's a powerful statement. Doesn't everybody feel that way? I don't know. Not not at that young of an age. I think it's something that people come to maybe later in life as adults. So I think that says a lot about who you are. Um, we're actually going to take a quick break, and we will Ladies, be back. Ladies, I have to love you and leave you. Oh, we're going to oh, love you and leave you, Jeff. So have a safe Lisa, flight. I look forward to meeting you in person. Have a great rest of the show, ladies. I will be listening, hopefully, from the other side of security. Great. Have a great Safe day. travel. Safe, safe travel. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Welcome back, everyone, to this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. Again, my name is Sue Rocco, and I'm in the studio this afternoon with Lisa Kabnick. Lisa is uh, a local lady. Um, she also spends a lot of time in New York, and she is an international finance lawyer, former vice chair of the financial industry group for Reed Smith. And uh, just before the break, uh, we were talking about your desire to be a lawyer as a young girl and and I guess I really wanted to know when you made that decision you know did it come when you were young or did it come in high school when did you make that decision it's a cute it's a cute story um so I was the older sister my sister was 21 months younger than I is to this day 21 months younger (laughs) than I am (laughs) will always be um (laughs) she used to get in trouble She was always, yeah, she was always (laughs) finding trouble. So my mother started calling me Lawyer Lisa because I was defending her. (laughs) But that kind of lawyer is so different than the lawyer I became as a finance and commercial 
you know, corporate lawyer. Right. But that sort of put the bug in my ear. Well, that's so funny. I know. All I knew was Perry Mason and, you know, L.A. Law, ultimately. I didn't really know any lawyers. But yeah, Right. But well, I, there's... There's, I mean, it's such a huge industry, and there's so many different areas you can go into, right? right? And right. so how did you end up in the financial field? Uh, how did I end up that? I was an undergraduate economics major, um, having started in Wharton, always having an interest in business. And um, in law school, I gravitated toward the corporate law classes and did well in corporate law. So I I'd been a summer associate at a firm, and like everyone, you do a litigation stint, you do a tax stint, a corporate stint. And um, actually, I wanted to be tax and corporate, and I asked for that, and they said I couldn't be the fairy princess. I had to pick one. Oh. So <laughs> so I figured that corporate was broader um, and would give me more opportunity, so um, I picked corporate and ended up sitting between – Two partners, one um, who was an international lawyer who was very involved in, um, well, he was chancellor of the Philadelphia Bar. He had written Article 5 of the UCC, which is about letters of credit. But anyway, he was um, a banking lawyer, and he was referred the through um, Philadelphia banks were trying to collect money that the Pinochet government in Chile had um, borrowed. And he was involved with that. And when the fruit started coming from Chile, that lawyer then referred work back to him. And so very early on, I was involved in international things with him because of the Chilean fruit. Um, that's how I got involved, the Chilean-American Chamber of Commerce and things oh, like that. Okay. And then I was also working with another, you know, bona fide finance lawyer who was doing the, you know, deals all the time. And so I always... Um, Say, so, you know, one of them taught me the grit of being a lawyer and the other gave me enough rope to hang myself. <laughs> They'd say, you know, you're, you know, he'd be sort of many layers above and I would be down in the trenches. And he said, just you're smart enough. If you have a question, you'll come to me. There so that go. gave me confidence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. that's a that's a great bit of advice. Don't ever, ever be afraid to, you know, no, you, have say to you, don't, you have to ask questions and say you don't know something. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, you know, the. Um, financial industry um, as well as the legal industry has changed oh, yeah. since, you know, you first became a lawyer and especially for women. And I wonder if you can talk a few minutes about how you feel things have progressed for women in the legal industry, um, what areas maybe you would like to see change and get better, or if even um, as a female attorney yourself, when you were out and about doing the work that you were doing, you didn't sense any difference, and you kind of just went about your work um, as a female lawyer. Oh. Is that a big loaded question, That is right? a big loaded question. Yeah. Um, there, there are a number of um, levels that I'll respond to. One is when I graduated from law school, we were 50%. Women were 50% of the class, 1980. Um, we mostly ran the law review. We were the top of the class. We all went to law firms, many Almost everybody went to a law firm. And then it starts to dwindle. Um, it's really hard, even today, it's really hard being an associate and then a partner in a law firm. And as people had children, people went in different directions. They said, this isn't worth it. So I've, um, I persevered for the reasons we talked about before mm-hmm. um, and had many... Uh, associates working for me over the years who were very talented women 
who had their first child and either went in-house or stopped working or, you know, just had transitions because it's it's really hard. And I think it's even harder for a woman than it is for men. Obvious child raising, you know, you right. even if you have a nanny, you're the one that's responsible for making sure you're there to relieve the nanny, typically. It's, mm-hmm. it's unusual, although I have to say that the uh, new head of Morgan Lewis is a woman whose husband has really been supportive of her. So oh, that's a good asterisk, Jamie McCune. Yeah. But as a general matter, it's the women who are responsible. Um, and it's hard. It's really hard. And there's um, evidence, you know, they, they treat you like a young girl. Mm-hmm. Um, there are clients who don't want women on their teams. They're, they're, there's a lot of There's a lot of things you don't even know about. Right. You know, it just happens. I have one one of the Chilean clients said, I don't want that young girl yeah. <laughs> to my face. I said, tough, that's who you got. And we ended up being great friends, but, you know. <laughs> well, you yeah. didn't even hesitate. Oh, you I had, said, well, I had no choice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the way it was. But you have to, you know, you just have to roll with the punches. I mean, I have my fair share of stories of being attacked in various ways and mm-hmm. places that you just kind of. You can't get yourself all excited about it. You just have to keep going. So. Well, that, you know, that I'd love to hear your advice for, for women that are listening on that in particular, because you, you obviously, you, you experienced it, but you were ex- success in spite of it. And what enabled you to not be intimidated in those moments and just say, you know, excuse me, I'm here to do the job and just as good as you. I guess it's confidence. confidence. It's just confidence in knowing I would do a good job and over time win them over. Yeah, because I usually did. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, confidence is, is a huge thing. And that's about that self-talk that you, you have to just continually remind yourself. I have the, you know, I'm educated. I have the the smarts and the ability and I'm going to yeah. do it. Women often have this little birdie on the back of their shoulders saying, oh, they're going to find me out soon. Yeah, they're going to find me out. But mm-hmm. you just have to know that you're there for a reason. You've done what it takes and yeah. you have to just keep going. Yeah. That's great advice. Um, you were you were actually with uh, Pepper Hamilton um, between 1980 and 2002. And uh, so what precipitated your move over to Reed Smith? Well, that's an interesting question, which segues from your prior que- question that I didn't answer the first, the second half of. Okay. Which is changes in the um, banking industry. Yes, yes. Um, when I started at Pepper, there was a bank on every corner at Broad and Chestnut in Philadelphia. And by the time we left Pepper, there were no more banks headquartered in Pennsylvania. And so in order to do the kind of sophisticated work I was doing for the banks, I needed to be at a law firm that had relationships at the top of the house with the general counsel and with the whoever was running the various groups. And that wasn't in Philadelphia anymore. Um, another reason was that my husband um, had lived in London for 22 years before we got married, my second husband, who... Um, had opportunities in London, and really Pepper didn't have anything in London at the time. Okay. So those were those were two important reasons. They used to say I had a PHNS tattooed down oh. here. That I've been a <laughs> I've been a summer associate. I'd been you know practice group leader. I, I I had been at Pepper a very long time, and I still have very strong ties to the firm. I love the firm and many people there. Yeah. It just yeah. wasn't working for my career at that time, so we went. To Reed Smith. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of different reasons, you know, people leave firms and rarely I've had, you know, multiple attorneys on the show. Rarely do they come out of school, go with a firm and stay there forever. Well, that's now. That wasn't the case, yeah. you know, 
the people that were there that have been there forever, usually many stay, that the movement is only in the late 80s on. Before then, people just stayed their whole career at law firms. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's almost like, you know, that's a, a learning experience your first time out. And, and I mean, this is a question for you. Do you see um, attorneys then change in going into different fields? They learn that, you know, maybe corporate is not my, you know, my passion or my interest and I'm better suited for some acts or something else. Occasionally, mm-hmm. um, not that frequently, but some, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I, I know of people who've switched practice areas, but I'd say it's less prevalent than you would think. Is it? Okay. Um, One of the things that, you know, I want to mention for the listeners, how involved you are um, in addition to, you know, practicing law and and the work that you did with Reed Smith. Um, You sit on many boards. Um, You have affiliations just in the Philadelphia area with the Kimmel Center, the Philadelphia Ballet, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Constitution Center, the Boys and Girls Club of America. Um, I know that I've probably left out a few. Um, Breastcancer.org. Breastcancer.org. <laughs> well, we, yeah, we talked about that in the beginning. Right. Um, and, and also, you have two children, by the way, and we'll talk about them later. I always want to give a shout-out to the kids. You have a son and a daughter. Yes, but, thank you. Um, so you find the time to do multiple things and do them well. Why do you, you? Why is it important to you to give back? You know, to do to go above and beyond uh, the role of mother and and the career that you chose. Probably, I know I'm very lucky, and we'll talk about that in the context of medical advancement and still being alive. Yeah, and I've through the years um, been fortunate in terms financially, and I'm secure, and I want to be able to help people in less advantaged ways who who need opportunity. I really I like to focus on giving people opportunity. That's important to me. And would you say again that that might kind of stem from, you know, probably when you were young and and you know, you felt that yourself. I was given an opportunity that, you know, maybe I wouldn't have if somebody hadn't Right. You know, right. Yeah. Your my husband out. says I have a soft spot for rags to riches stories. I always end up crying. <laughs> oh, well, that's a great thing. That's a I great guess thing. So. But what, like two of the things that you don't really hear about were a friend of mine was working for the city of New York and raising money for the mayor's program to give underprivileged students an opportunity to do internships over the summer. And then they needed money for stipends to buy clothes and travel and lunch and whatever. And that was something we supported for a few years as a, I think, the, just the kind of thing that, you know, people who can should be supporting. That was yeah. important to me. Do you have a love in any one particular area, whether it's the arts or with children or with women? You know, your your efforts have been in, in met with many groups. I think the cultural institutions are important, but those are more driven by my husband and, and his interests that, and we've gotten involved in those together. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, breastcancer.org and Living Beyond Breast Cancer were very impactful and very important. And the kinds of things that we did at breastcancer.org included helping translate into Spanish, because there's so many women out there um, who don't speak English and who do speak Spanish throughout the world. And um, before there were the technology that exists now, we were helping with chat rooms um, and discussion boards for people to actually talk to each other about the issues that were on their minds. So those were the kinds of, you know, very specific, very impactful um, types 
of philanthropy that I've really enjoyed. And then on the education side, um, what I talked about before, and um, we established um, at the University of Pennsylvania a scholarship in my grandfather's name. Oh, that's wonderful. For, um, undergraduate scholarships um, for women. So For women, okay. Um, from the mid-Atlantic states, I think we got it pretty specific. Yeah. Um, so the, yeah. those are areas that I'm particularly passionate yeah, about. Yeah, that's wonderful. What? Tell me what, what if you were not a lawyer, what, what would, would you be? What would you be doing? Um, that's easy. I would be a, a, a therapist. You would be. <laughs> I would be a therapist because I think I spend so much time um, with people. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, having been through whatever, divorce or cancer or raising children or being a child or a parent or whatever, um, I really enjoy working with people just talking about how to help them. Yeah. So. And, you know, I say often on this show, I feel that, you know, everyone should have a psychology degree. Right. No matter what industry you're in. That's right. Good point. Right? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, business is all about relationships and people. And right. if you have that kind of, you know... Everything you do is about that. Everything. Every not-for-profit board, every... Anything you touch, your children's schools, your relationships with the teachers, with the other parents, it just, it's all... It's, it's all... It's relationships, yeah, right? And conversation mm-hmm. and negotiating and understanding another and empathy and all it's of all that. all those things, yeah. yeah. So that that's an easy one. I long ago yeah. decided that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's never too late. No. Never too late. <laughs> no, that's not my, that's not where I'm headed. <laughs> no. Um, well, so you are in somewhat of a transition now with Reed Smith and you're you I know, am. stepping out. So I want to, you, you know, there. I want you to talk about your, what your plans for the future are. Uh, as of the end of last year, I resigned as an equity partner at the firm, and I'm working with um, clients and colleagues to try and transition some relationships um, so that I'm not there full-time anymore, although I'm always on my email. This hour we're on the radio, people are going to be, you know, where were you? Right. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I can't believe three, it. 3,000 emails I know, after I'm afraid the show. To look. But um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm doing that, and the reason I did it was I've been a lawyer for a long time, and I've worked very diligently and passionately at it, but I've always had an interest in corporate board work, the for-profit corporate board. So Mm -hmm. um, that's what I'm uh, focused on now. And I think I actually have one. Um, Can't say the name yet, but I'm in the process of finalizing that. I'm very excited about it. Okay. I'll have you back on the show to disclose that okay. at a later date. <laughs> happy, to, happy to come back. You've yeah. made it so much fun. Oh, good. Yeah. No, I'm so glad, um, you know, that you found that. That can be a yeah. kind of a daunting, not a daunting task, but, you know, to, to find the right fit, to find the right one. Well, that's a whole show in and of itself because you've probably heard um, there's a lot of talk out there, maybe an article a day about getting more women on boards. Yes. There's... There are good reasons financially, you know, increases stock value, customer loyalty, profits, all those things. Um, But for some reason, women have not been uh, accepted on corporate boards. They are always looking for former CEOs or CFOs or sitting CEOs or CFOs. Well, there aren't that many women in those positions at large enough size companies to really be in that pool. Um, so it's really pushing the corporate world to understand that they need to broaden their perspectives. And, you know, there's a large, you know, there are large clothing companies and consumer oriented companies where women are doing almost all the buying and they have no women on their boards. That's right. 
85% consumer buyers are women. Well, there you go. Yeah. What do you think some actionable steps are we could take, um, you know, to really, again, there's a, there's a lot of groups out there, you know, working to try yeah. to change that number, but yet we're not seeing it. You know, do you have some thoughts yourself well, about some strategies that... I don't know the answer. It's probably different for every different situation. Um, in Germany, they've just legislated that boards need to be, I think it's 30% women. Um, in the UK, they started something called the 30% Club, where a very dynamic woman in business has gone around and sat with all the CEOs. I and know her, that's, the founder. Yeah. yeah. And, and she's had quite a bit of success mm-hmm. in doing that. Um, they're trying to start that up in the U.S. And actually, I was in a meeting in New York about a month ago about that. Um, I just, I think a lot of people talk about it, but until there's some teeth behind, you know, some stock exchange rule or something, um, people are going to be slow. Yeah. Well, and and also to bring the men into the conversation, right, John? <laughs> Lisa's husband is in in the studio with us. But, you know, you and I have talked about that, too. It, it can't always be women, you know, in a room talking about what we need more of for women. Um, I think that men chiming in on why they agree and, and see the value in it as well will make a huge difference. And that's, I think, been the basis of the success of the woman in England, because she's convinced the CEOs that this is important for them and for their companies. And Why? And, and showing, why, showing why. profits and customer right. loyalty and on stock value and all the things that yes. they care about. They, that's right. Got to right. They like those get them. stats and numbers and yeah, you got to get them where they care. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Um, I, I want to talk about your your kids for a little bit. You have a son who I believe is in law school at Fordham. My son is a third year lawyer at a law firm. Oh, he, he graduated is. Okay. Well, then that was old news. <laughs> that's old news. No, yeah. that's old news. Yeah, Andy. Um, Went to uh, GW and studied history and always wanted to be a lawyer. I couldn't talk him out of it. Um, Did you try? Well, (laughs) he started law school um, at the boom and then graduated in 2011 when the whole industry had really gotten very um, big downturn in the legal industry and it was much harder to find your jobs. But through luck and um, perseverance, he is at a firm that he loves. He's he's. Just working really hard and happy about it. So yeah. really proud of him. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And and you have a daughter. I have a daughter. Julia. Yes. Should Julia. Mention, let's give them a shout out. Andrew and Julia. Andrew and Julia. Yes. Yeah. Julia uh, lives in New York City. She'd uh, gone to NYU and was a French major and around fashion for many years. She's just she's got the artistic thing from her father's side of the family, which I don't share. Um, but she uh, loves putting things together and, and creating palettes of, of people in terms of clothing and styling. And so um, she's a bit of an entrepreneur right now, and she's got her own business, Julia the Stylist. Oh, great. And yeah. um, she works with people in New York and does their closets and then shops with them. Um, if you have a um, an event or for work clothes or for weekend clothes or for some different opportunities, she'll work with you. Yeah. Um, and she's also working at an e-commerce um, company called Keaton Row, where she's a startup, two really amazing young women. And um, with them, she's been able to do online styling. Okay. So yeah. it's she, a big business. It's actually. a huge business. It's a huge business. 
And, you know, she taught me something. I've learned a lot from my daughter. I've learned a lot from both of my children. But with respect to um, my daughter, Julia, you know, I never I, I went around in Brooks Brothers suits with floppy bow ties because that's what women wore in, mm. when I was starting out. And what she taught me was if you look good and you feel good, you're going to be better at what you're doing. You're going to have the confidence to have the right um I don't know, just confidence. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. I think we, you know, we had a discussion in here one time about the fact that years ago, women felt in order for them to compete with men in business, they had to wear a suit. And that's so silly. And we know that now, that you need to be whoever you are, whatever makes you feel comfortable. And then you will. You'll present well. With more uh, confidence. With yeah. more confidence. Yeah. yeah. So I give her a lot of credit for that. Yeah. And, and I hope she's helping lots of other women out there, too. Yeah. Well, if we're encouraging more women to be entrepreneurs and more women to kind of, you know, move up into leadership roles, right. they're busy. Right. And right. to have somebody who can help them be organized in this other area is really a plus. That's so true. Yeah. That's so true. And even though, she, you know, I was her first, I'd say I was her Barbie doll. I was her first client. Right. Um. She's had to now realize that not all of her clients can afford what I might be able to afford after being a lawyer for 35 years. That's right. But she's, you know, been able to work with people her own age who are starting out, and I think she really loves doing that. Yeah, that's terrific. Um, Tell me what you feel, you know, for some of the, I hope, you know, amongst the listeners today are women that are kind of on the cusp of making a change. You know, they're in some kind of a transition, and they feel stuck. Um, which is is often the case, you know. Life can be scary as you know by itself, let alone be having a change in your life. And often it comes later in life when you've been a mother and and maybe worked in other other uh, jobs. What kind of advice would you give to help them get over that? In other words, to find the courage to make the change. I guess I would say if it's in your heart and you want to do it, and you feel like you could be successful at whatever it is you want to move to. And you should go for it. You shouldn't, you know, we're, we're all, I being one of the worst offenders, I'm fearful of change. Are you? You know, yeah. I can accept the status quo, but change is very frightening. But once you get on the other side, I'm so thrilled I did what I did resigning as an equity partner from the firm. That was something that would, no one believed I would ever do. They just because, thought right, I was. How many years were you? Well, I've been a lawyer for 35 years. I've been at Reed Smith for 12. And I'm I gave up a lot doing it, but yeah. I feel like I gained a lot more. Mm-hmm. And you can't always know what's on the other side. Right. But if it seems to make sense to you and you you have the ability to do it, my husband was a big encouraging factor. He mm-hmm. he wanted me to do what I wanted to do after all this time. So yeah, I would encourage people to make the leap if they, if they've thought it through, they've done the studying, they've done the analysis, and it works financially and right. it works professionally for them. Then they shouldn't be afraid to make a change yeah and you know your 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 head tells you you know there's always that little voice that's telling you it's time for a change it makes life so much more exciting i think right right to right. try something new right it's scary yeah very scary i it was very scary. scared i hadn't interviewed here i was interviewing for boards and networking and telling people this is what i want to do and i didn't have exactly the right background and i got a lot of negative reinforcement because lawyers are not highly regarded in on the boards that's that a whole. Right? Oh, oh yeah, that's a whole other that. discussion. No lawyers, oh, wow. they say if we want a lawyer, we can hire one. They kind of miss the point, I think, of the different perspective that a lawyer brings—the strategic thinking and the and the um, problem solving mm-hmm. and the ability to get things done. That you know, 
are inherent in being a good commercial lawyer. And so because I got lucky and uh, the board that I am going to be on um, is focused on corporate governance, right? So that background that I have was useful to them. So putting it all together um, made me an attractive candidate. Well, the other thing is you have to really go out and self-promote. And that's hard. And my hard. guess is that you're <laughs> you're not that comfortable with that, that right? That would be correct. Hey, how did I know that? Because yeah. he had to talk me into doing this. <laughs> <laughs> but you're doing a great job. Um, no, but that's very key. And I, I say this to women all the time. We need to work on being more proud, right? If, you, if you've accomplished something, and as far as I'm concerned, if you're getting out of bed every day and you're being a good person and you're working hard and you're trying, that's tremendous. But if you've gone above and beyond that, you should be able to be proud and let people know, especially if you're pursuing something, look what I've done, you know, not in a braggioso kind of way, but just kind of very matter of fact. These are the things that I've done in my life and they will benefit you. Don't you think? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> that's good advice. <laughs> Listeners, that's good advice that's... from Sue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, I mean, I know that you obviously, you did it because, you know, you did, um, fingers crossed, you know, you're going to be taking on this new role. And I'm right. excited for you and I'm thank thrilled. You. And I thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. And, and it was great to meet Beth as well. And yep. she's a, she's got a, a great dynamo. partner for for your um, organization. I so. do. And I know that you'll be following us, you know, I as we move forward will. on on all aspects of, you know, the work that she's doing and and just women in, in leadership in Anything general. Anything I can do to help. Terrific. You know Listen, that. if there's someone who wants to get in touch with you who's listening, is there contact information you'd like to share? Uh, you could email me at lisacabnick at gmail.com. Okay. That's, That's easy enough. Yeah. Okay. And I'll post that, uh, you know, on our website and your, okay. uh, your show will be ongoing. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. Again, my name is Sue Rocco, and I'd love for you to reach out to us on our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you, Sue. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, 
you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.